in the meantime, we're going to continue our exposition of the book of Nehemiah. So if you would, please turn with me to chapter 3. As you turn there, I'm sure many of you remember this, but before the world of iPhones and digital photography, pictures were taken with film. Traditional camera film is naturally very sensitive to light, and the process of developing that film requires a special room known as a dark room. Now, for the film developer to see what they're doing, a special light is used to fill that room with a deep red light that the film does not react to. However, everything in that room looks completely different, down to the very photos that are being developed. Though there is some light, a dark room can still be a tricky environment to navigate. Now, once the film processing was done, the developer could turn on a regular light again and see everything in that room differently. Even though none of the objects had changed, the proper lighting reveals details the darkroom safe light kept hidden. Now, like in the darkroom, today we're developing a passage in Scripture that can be reviewed with several different lights. Also, like a darkroom, some ways of illuminating this passage are more helpful and reveal more details than others. Unfortunately, we can find ourselves prone to using improper lighting that can affect how we approach and respond to not just this passage, but circumstances in our lives that resemble this passage. So let us look to Nehemiah chapter 3, and I hope that God will help us to see it in the proper light today. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5, but I'll be referencing other parts of this chapter through the remainder of this message. All right, so let's dive in. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stirp, stoop to serve their Lord. Dear God, thank you for this great and awesome responsibility, this privilege that you've given to me today to preach your word. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into each and every one of our hearts illuminate this passage, illuminate the truth that you would have for us. Glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in the preaching of this word, Lord. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present speaking to each of our hearts today. Amen. 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 The point of my message this afternoon is this, that God is eternal. Therefore, we as his people should live in light of eternity. Again, God is eternal. Therefore, we as his people should live in light of eternity. The three points I want to draw from this passage today are, number one, living in light of the temporal. Number two, living in light of eternity. And number three, walking in the better light. As I said before, we're talking about all of Nehemiah chapter three today. However, I didn't read the whole chapter because it's very straightforward to summarize. The chapter outlines in great detail the people who repaired the wall of Jerusalem and the chapter and exactly what segment of the wall they were responsible for. 
So I have an image of that wall that I'm hoping is on display here, but if it's not, or if it's hard to see, imagine in your mind's eye a bouquet of flowers. That bouquet is roughly the shape of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah, with the temple and much of the main life of the city at the flowery, bushy part at the top, and then annexed to a long, skinny stem leading leading down and away from the city to the south. So there's this bouquet-shaped city, and Nehemiah and the returning exiles have taken up their call to repair the wall that was to make up its perimeter. Now, these 32 verses in chapter 3, they make up the start of the northeastern part of this wall, and they describe the entire perimeter in a counterclockwise direction, calling out the specific gates and sections along the way. And that's it. That's the whole chapter. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves... It's tempting to declare this chapter pretty dry reading. I'm sure before I was asked to preach on it, I'd read this chapter before, happily glossed over it, and didn't think much about it as I kept going. I fear this is a side effect of the first light that I want to talk about today. This first light is the one we are all too familiar with. I will call it the temporal light. And let me explain a little what I mean by this term. To live temporally is to see and evaluate things horizontally to consider things in terms of how the world thinks of them. The temporal value of a building or an event or a person is limited to what it is materially. If there is any connection to anything bigger, any grand plan to which the city or wall is a part, those plans too are valued by how much the world values them. The city is just a city. The wall is just a wall. In light of living temporally, The idea of rebuilding Jerusalem's wall immediately comes with a host of questions. In the first place, what's the purpose of rebuilding? Sure, they may have had the materials they need, but how much is this going to cost in terms of manpower and time? Why pour all this blood, sweat, and tears into something that might not defend the city? What's to stop Artaxerxes from changing his mind and destroying all this effort like Babylon did before him? Speaking of other nations, what are Israel's neighbors going to think? Will they regard the effort as foolish, as Israel wrongly believes the wall will be effective in battle? On the other hand, as we saw in the previous chapter, in verses 10 and 19b, would their foes perceive Israel as a threat, to be watched with suspicion, wondering if they will once again flourish into a local power? Finally, as an Israelite, what's in it for them? What do they stand to gain from the time or money or effort that they're about to put into this wall? The reality is that it's not hard to come up with these questions. And indeed, there are countless others that you or I could have come up with that I didn't list here. Now, temporal questions are not bad questions in their own right. In money matters, it's wise to ask yourself how much you can spend based on how much you have in the bank. In business matters, it's wise to evaluate the risks of a strategy before a company decides to invest in it. In relationships, it's wise to consider your life goals and desires as you go looking for a spouse. And in parenting, it's a good thing to evaluate the needs of your children and strive to meet them. In life, a lot of our time is spent asking and answering these kinds of questions. So we are naturally well-trained here. So what's the problem? The problem starts when thinking temporally becomes the main way you evaluate circumstances in your life. When you find yourself facing a decision to be made, as you put the pros and the cons on the proverbial decision-making scale, do you put too much weight on the cares of this world and not enough on God's perspective? 
as much as we think about our vertical relationship to the Lord, do we give final consideration horizontally to what is going on around us? This is where the problem arises. When we transition from thinking temporally to living temporally, this overemphasis on the here and now will steer any soul in the wrong direction. Here are a few examples of how living temporally can have an adverse effect on your life. Firstly, living temporally can cause you to compare yourself to others. It's all too easy to evaluate who we are and what we have in light of other people. Sometimes we do this in an attempt to feel better about ourselves. My job is clearly better than that job over there. Or I may not have the newest car, but at least it's not a junker like that one. Or my spouse has got way more to do in this relationship than I do. On the other hand, comparing yourself to others might leave you disparaged over people's achievements that have exceeded yours. How many of us have browsed other people's social media profiles where their sports victories, exotic vacation photos, or other highlights only serve to underscore how much we are failing to live up to imaginary standards? Comparing yourself to others is a completely horizontal headspace and will only leave you with a false sense of either pride or failure. Secondly, living temporally can lead you to compartmentalize your life. When I'm at work or at school, perhaps I do what is needed to interact with my peers in a certain way. But when I'm at church, oh, I dress differently. I act differently. And I say phrases that are more socially acceptable in that particular circle. Or when I'm in a position of authority, I have to change how I behave yet again to make sure those under me know who is in charge. If these areas were ever to overlap, it would be awkward at best. Or worse, other people might see a part of me that I don't want them to see. Do your coworkers know that you are a Christian? Or would that realization be unthinkable? Or do you shudder to think of how your parents would react to the person that you are dating? If you find yourself managing the various facets of who you are by keeping your spheres of life distinct, then perhaps you might be falling into this temptation. Compartmentalizing your life is an act of self-deception where you're trying to be who everyone else wants you to be and in the end, you fail to be yourself. Thirdly and most prominently, living temporally can lead you to living selfishly. We find a clear example of this in our passage. Take a look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, the settlement of Tekoa, it still exists today in modern-day Israel, and it's just 12 miles south of Jerusalem. It's clear throughout this chapter that Nehemiah enlisted the entire surrounding region of Judea to come and help rebuild the wall. And it doesn't take that much imagination to picture messengers being sent out to all of these cities, finding themselves in Tekoa, and how the nobles might have responded to the call. They may have thought something like, ah, Jerusalem, I've gotten where I am without it, and now somebody wants to come and rebuild it? That city is half a day's journey from here. I've not had business with it before, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. What good would come of such work? Besides, there are plenty of others here who are willing and able to go and help. They don't need me. No, I don't see the value in my going. I won't subject myself to such labor. It's all too easy for the human heart to focus on the stooping, the triviality, the indignity of the work, 
and to conclude that it wants no part of it. But what the nobles have lost sight of is who they are stooping for. It is no man whose thoughts are warped and whose motives are suspect. It is not even a king who, despite his lofty status, is beholden to the temptations and the abuses that come with power. No, this is their Lord, their creator, the one in whose image they have been made, in whose infinite wisdom and power he fashioned the necks they are now using to wag their heads at him in rejection. Their self-centeredness is now recorded forever as an example of people who were too focused on the temporal. To wrap up our thoughts, these are the consequences that come out of living temporally. It makes us like racehorses with blinders on, where all we can see is what is right in front of us. Our vision becomes so filled with what is going on down here that we can become fearful, self-deceived, and selfish. We cease to be the full sense of who God calls us to be as his image bearers in a world that really is desperate to see him. So that's the one light we're accustomed to using when reading chapters like Nehemiah 3 and also evaluating our own circumstances. Like the safe light in the dark room, yes, we can see some things, but we're not seeing things the way that they are. Now, let's turn on the proper light to illuminate another perspective. That light starts with the understanding that God sees the end from the beginning, that all of his plans are wise and good, that what he calls us to is for his benefit and for our glory. Now, as we account for the spiritual eternal light, how does that reframe Nehemiah chapter 3 and the testimony of those who worked on the wall? By extension, how should that eternal light reveal to us the circumstances we are in and our responses to them. So let's go back to the first two verses of the passage. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. The first insight here is that these people were living for eternity, is that they consecrated the repair of the wall. They grabbed their hammers, their nails, their rocks, the mortar. They put on their work clothes. They marched out to the ruined walls. They rolled up their sleeves and they dedicated everything that was about to take place to the Lord. Their initial response to the monumental task they had before them was to pray and ask God to be in the midst of their situation. This is a big deal because it frames everything they are about to do, not as just work or just a grind, but work set apart by the Lord and for the Lord. Everything they were about to do after this verse is now cast in a light of holy calling. They knew it was going to be hard work, lifting hundreds of pounds of rock, laying down countless buckets full of mortar, suffering injuries, sore muscles, aching backs, wrestling with the frustration of materials that aren't quite up to par, tools that keep breaking, or long periods of slow, lonely work as they focus on their section of the wall. But they had this to remind them, this wall is holy, not because of who is building it or the techniques or materials used to build it, but because God is in the midst of their efforts. And as long as God is there, that's the final note of every thought that makes everything worthwhile. Now, the second insight to these people that these people were living for eternity comes from their confidence in doing work they otherwise may not have been qualified to do. Throughout the chapter, Nehemiah lists not just the people who built the wall, 
but what their job titles were, who they were when they were not repairing. These are priests, governing officials, goldsmiths, perfumers, district ruler after district ruler, more priests, temple servants, guards, another goldsmith, merchants, sons, daughters, brothers, men, women. It is a giant list of people who are everything but stonemasons for the wall or carpenters for the gates. These are people who on any other day for any other purpose would look at this work and think that is not my wheelhouse. But for this task, they were undergirded by a sense of calling from God that this was something they could do. Their qualifications were not in how strong they were or how much experience they had or how much their job lent itself to repairing a wall. No, their qualification was simply that they were God's people, that they believed God's purpose for them at a time, and at that time was to repair this wall around Jerusalem, that whatever skill they may lack or muscle, they trusted God would make up the difference. To expand on this, I want to tell you a story about a man who walked and worked in light of eternity. In the early 1970s, a region on the very easternmost tip of India underwent a violent upheaval, culminating in a revolution that formed the independent nation of Bangladesh. Viggo Olsen is an American medical missionary who dedicated his life to that region and people during that time and wrote about it in a book called The Daktar Diplomat in Bangladesh. In that book, Viggo recounts a time when he felt called by the Lord to gather a group of people to bring food and medical supplies to towns and villages across the country. Along with the much-needed aid, Viggo and his team sought to repair damaged houses as well as constructing new ones. A group of volunteers from Wheaton College made up a bulk of the labor force. So Viggo had the plan, he had the hands, and he was just now waiting for the funds. But they were met by a mysterious resistance from Washington, D.C., not to be discouraged, Vigo flew his Bangladesh brigade in country before the funds were released, trusting, that the Lord, trusting the Lord that they would arrive by the time they got there. Sure enough, the funds eventually arrived and the group got about their work. The initial goal Vigo and his team had was to build and repair 4,000 homes across the country to give aid to the fledgling nation. During these reconstruction efforts, Vigo was reading through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for spiritual guidance. The American volunteers who were with him were also looking to the Lord amidst their efforts. And in the story, he recounts, During the month of May in 1972, the house building continued unabated in the blistering sun. The Bangladesh hot season, like a gigantic steam bath, sapped the men's strength and melted pounds from them. Various ones lost 5 pounds, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, even 30 pounds during their days of serving the Bengali people. They became hard and brown, and sometimes emotionally ragged because of the emotional, spiritual trauma that was the greatest. As they awakened in the morning, their hands groped for Bibles. They knew they needed something from God each day to face the noisy, gasping crowds. To make a long story short, Vigo and his Bangladesh brigade completed their work in a few short months. In that time, they far exceeded the original goal of 4,000 homes having coordinated and overseen over 10,000 homes being built for the people of Bangladesh. The American ambassador to the country at the time was so blown away that he invited Vigo and his leadership team to a dinner in their honor. Now, at the end of this story, 
could not be a more perfect example of the contrast between living temporally and living eternally. As the dinner is winding down, the ambassador approaches Vigo and explains, at the beginning of his efforts, as he was trying to secure aid funds from Washington, D.C., it was the ambassador who was actively working against the relief effort. It was then that the ambassador made a full confession. He was convinced the Bangladesh Brigade was going to fail. First off, they had set an impossible goal for themselves. He was concerned the culture shock would be too much for these collegiate volunteers, or that they would not know the local customs or culture and end up offending the people that they were trying to serve. He assumed other intelligence elements in the country would consider them CIA agents and a threat to political stability and interests. With these concerns and more, he weighed the task that was before Vigo and his team and concluded that they should not be allowed to provide aid to the country. The ambassador concluded with a heartfelt apology as none of the fears he was holding on to came to pass. Vigo Olson concluded this incredible chapter with an eternally focused, God-facing summary that can't be improved upon. He wrote, humbled by, these comment, humbled by his comments, we thanked him, enjoyed the refreshments, and headed for the airport. Waiting for our flight, I contemplated the ambassador's analysis and his fears. He was an intelligent, capable man, experienced in the country. So why did his dire predictions fail? As I pondered the question, the answer came to me clearly. Our team was not composed of ordinary Peace Corps types. Rather, our success was due to the double dedication of the Bangladesh Brigade. Because our young men and women were so deeply dedicated to Christ, they gained an outstanding dedication to the task which their Lord had called them. The ambassador had no way to know that our group possesses this extra spiritual dimension, which so powerfully reinforced their dedication to the work. But on the front lines, it spelled the difference between failure and success. It was foremost their dedication to Jesus that fueled and supported their dedication to the incredible task at hand. Their vertical understanding of and relationship with God was the foundation they needed to be most effective horizontally to the people of Bangladesh. Thank God for people and examples like Vigo Olson, and thank God for examples like Nehemiah. Both men and the teams they had under them were first focused on the Lord, and that informed and empowered the focus they had in completing the task that lay before them. So we've been in the spiritual film development room. We've talked through the dangers of walking temporally. We've seen the better way of engaging circumstances with the light of eternity. Now let us take some time to explore how we can get there from here. Here are three ways that we can tap into the same enabling power, as Vigo said, to possess the extra spiritual dimension necessary to complete the work that God has called us all to. Firstly, it all begins with grace to have a Godward perspective, to live life in light of eternity, we simply must begin by realizing we cannot pursue God unless he first pursues us. And that's exactly what he did in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot know God, his character, or his will for you unless you are first known by him. In his brilliant book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer emphasizes this first principle. He writes, God's knowledge of those who are his is associated with the whole purpose of saving mercy. It is a knowledge that implies a personal affection, redeeming action, 
covenant faithfulness and providential watchfulness towards those whom God knows. It implies, in other words, salvation now and forever. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. Brothers and sisters, I know some of the walls you are now facing, the mighty tasks that God has called you to. Some of them are temporary. Some of them have been around for a while, and even others show no sign of completion. Some are small, and it's tempting to think you can accomplish them on your own. Others appear so impossibly large that you have been tempted to give up on them in discouragement time and time again. But I want you to know that God knows you. His love is upon you, not because of anything great you have done or will do, but because his son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life. And by that death and and resurrection, it's now been accredited to you. Therefore, there is no task where God will not be present. There is no trouble or circumstance or trial or pain where you will ever be alone. As Paul says in Romans 8, 31, 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Secondly, if you ever find yourself asking the question, what great thing can I do for God? Let me suggest you are asking the wrong question. Because living, in light, living life in light of eternity means that there is no division between the things you do for school or the Lord, or things you do for work or the Lord, or things you do for your family, or the Lord. Everything a believer does is a sacred work. Everything a believer does is a sacred work. In a large portion of life, kingdom work can be surprisingly ordinary. Who among you has ever delivered a meal to someone when they or their family needed one? Who among you has ever felt like passing out in the summer heat during a jam Bible camp? Who among you has ever hosted a church family or guest at your home for a meal and fellowship? Who among you has ever helped with setup and takedown on a Sunday afternoon? Who among you has ever done the dishes, the laundry, driven a child or neighbor to a doctor's appointment, bandaged a wound, sent hello to someone at church, or given to someone who is mourning a hug? My friends, those are great things for God. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 10, verses 42, when he says, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. As Christians, the lives we are living right now have eternal value and significance. So in a very real sense, we are all already living in eternity. Therefore, any act, no matter how small, that is done in the will of the Lord is a work that will have ripple effects outwards and into the world for our good and for God's glory. So the question isn't, what great thing can I do for God? But it is merely, what thing can I do for God? Because if we are doing that, then what we are doing is great. Thirdly, with grace fueling your actions and a heart that is eager to obey the will of the Lord, the next thing we must do is keep moving forward. 
Life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And some days, we're just going to have to take it one step at a time. Remember at the beginning of the message this afternoon, how I told you chapter three describes all the features of the walls and its gate and this large counterclockwise path around the city shaped like a bouquet of flowers. Now imagine if you will, Nehemiah gathering all of his volunteers around himself as he starts to appoint portions of this wall. Now the high priests, he may have started, they will build and consecrate the gates through which the sacrifices of the Lord will pass and the walls that will defend Jerusalem from invaders to the north. And the sons of Hassanah, where are you? Ah, yes, you will be responsible for the fish gate where the merchants will pass through with their fish and their wares to sell in the local markets and on and on. And Nehemiah is calling out all these names and giving them portions of the wall. And where is Malchijah? Ah, yes, I have you down for the dung gate. The dung gate. The family over here gets the gate where God's sacrifices will pass. And this other family gets this other prominent portion of the wall. And what does Malchijah get? He gets the dung gate. It is no accident that it is at the very bottom of the bouquet as far away from everyone else as it could possibly be. Now here, if I were Malchijah, I would surely be tempted to grumble and complain and be more aware of myself in the circumstance and how it would seem I drew the incredibly short straw in this particular allocation of tasks. As I'm up on that wall, struggling to plumb the gate's crossbeam level, I would be fishing splinters out of my hands, thinking over and over again, I'm a computer programmer, man. What am I doing up here? And I'd be caught right back in living not for the eternal, but for the temporal. But what does the Bible say? Malchijah rebuilt it and set the gate's doors, its bolts, and its bars. I'm sure the work was very hard. I'm sure there were moments when he found himself frustrated or lonely or trying to beat back the afternoon heat. But I also know that he was dedicating himself to the work of the Lord, and that was enough for him to keep going. And the Bible describes his completion of the dung gate with the exact same words it uses to describe the finishing of many of the other gates is around the wall, as if to underscore that Malchijah completed his task with the same level of steadfast determination had it been the most important gate in Jerusalem. You remember the problems that we were talking about earlier that came with living temporally? We talked about how an exclusive focus on the horizontal can lead us to comparing ourselves to others. But with a proper focus on the Lord, the Christian stands on a foundation of amazing grace in our lives that allows us to see and celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives as well. Instead of filling ourselves up with the self-deceived notion of how great or how small we are, we are instead filled with the biblical truth that God of all creation knows us and loves us and is ever-present in our circumstances. We also talked about the temporal inclination towards compartmentalizing one's life, separating those different spheres into these tiny manageable pieces. Instead, a heart that is living in light of eternity knows that God has called them to be a light on a hill and to be that light without exception in all of life. Instead of changing who we are to please those around us, let us strive to bear spirit-filled fruit that reflects Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, we talked about the temptation to live selfishly. There's simply no room for it in a heart that is rightly aligned with biblical truth. 
Every page of the Bible highlights God's plan of salvation, where Jesus Christ descended into a world of sin in order to rescue out of it a people who love to be self-centered. And now that he has set us free, the reawakened heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, whose very presence drives us out, drives out selfishness in our lives. And as we put others above ourselves, we bear witness to the one who bore all of our sins on our behalf. If I could have the worship team, please come join me at the stage as I close. So we spent today unpacking what I believe God wants us to gain from Nehemiah chapter 3. I would encourage you to read the chapter and let God show it to you all over again with eyes that are not downward focused on the details, but upward focused on a group of people living out their calling and faithful lives directed towards God. Now, as I was preparing this message, I actually found myself asking this uh, this question, that if God were to write a Nehemiah chapter 3 for Sovereign Grace of Pasadena, what would be in it? Well, what about, and Ron and Bill and Tim led the church with humility and grace, encouraging everyone in the Lord to the best of their ability. And next to them, James and Jay and the rest of the AV team set up the equipment required for worship and live streaming. And next to them, Lisa Wright coordinated children's ministry. And next to her, Nicole and Alyssa led the girls who were attending the Wednesday Summit youth meetings. And next to them, a husband and a wife were faithfully tithing to financially support the mission of the local church. And next to them, Yanni Sylvester invited women into her home to teach them knitting or even give them a place to fold laundry in good company. And next to her, volunteers helped the family pack up and leave California. But next to them, Tanner and Tyler and Holly made their way to Celebration California as soon as they were able to play can jam with the kids and fellowship with their church family. And next to them, and next to them, and on and on and on. The moment you commit your life to following Jesus Christ in faith, you become a part of what God is building. I will close with Psalm 118, verses 20 through 23, that draws this link between what we are doing today and what Jesus is doing in eternity. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the light of eternity. Thank you, God, that you are a God who is not just interested in the small details of what's going on around us, although those things certainly do matter to you. But God, you have a purpose that is far beyond our reach and far beyond our understanding. And whenever we find ourselves aligned with that eternal perspective, with that eternal light shining into our lives, how much greater, how much more full of joy we find ourselves. So God, would you continue to give us that light, continue to shine that eternal perspective into whatever our lives' circumstances might be today. And as we go throughout this week, Lord, let us not give in to the temptation to live temporally, but to live life the way that you would have us live it. For you are our eternal God, and we are your eternal people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand.
and say merciful 